I always kind of work on numerous paintings at the same time. For me, like one of the the things that was, you know, kind of pivotal, especially being in Brooklyn and kind of this shift of work was thinking about like, you know, I was using a lot of like raw canvas and I'd like put them on the ground and working on like a larger piece of canvas. And then I'd like cut it up to make smaller paintings. So then like, you know, there's a few paintings that basically had the same like base information and the same kind of like starting a point. So they were all kind of like interrelated, you know, and they were all like cousins. Something that's pretty similar to like what's happening now with the paintings, like how I kind of start different like bodies of work. For me, like always working on numerous things at once and not really like mixing any colors ahead of time or so much even saving colors. Like I'll kind of just like use what's there. And so then decisions and moments and like, you know, one maneuver always informs like the next painting and so forth, almost in this like, you know, Domino's Rube Kohlberg type of scenario. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 268th episode, I'm super excited to be joined by Will Hutnick, who is an artist and curator. He currently lives up in Wasaic, where he is the Director of Artistic Probing at the Wasaic Project, which is a nonprofit. So we talk a bit about that. And of course, we go way back into the past, talk all about some of those early creative experiences, studying music and playing the cello, how he also was an avid explorer of two-dimensional art. We talk all about how that developed in undergraduate, working from observation, how that led towards abstraction and eventually sculptural explorations, all these different materials, everything from screen print, ink, paint, spray paint water-soluble colored pencils, and so, so much more. So before we dive into this interview, head on over to willhutnick.com. Check out some work there. You can also find him on Instagram at willhutnick. In case you haven't heard, Studio Break just turned 10 years old, and to commemorate that, we're having an extra special professional competition this year. Our juror, Erica B. Hess, is a fabulous painter and host of I Like Your Work podcast. She'll be selecting 10 artists to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break and to feature their work on our website. In addition to that, we'll be giving away two solo exhibitions in West Chicago that open up in 2022. One space is Hedgehog Gallery, and the other is my Studio Break Gallery. So very excited about that. If you want to apply, it's super easy. You just submit a small fee. You send an email with your information, your web address, and all of that good stuff. And once again, if you want to find out more information, just go to studiobreak.com, look for our pro competition page, and apply today. If you're new to the podcast, head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a bunch of different interviews up there with a variety of different artists. Again, each of those posts there have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites. And of course, you can listen right there on Studio Break or subscribe to the podcast. And of course, if you enjoy the podcast, be sure to follow on Facebook. You can like our page there. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And of course, be sure to follow at Studio underscore Break on Instagram. All right, let's dive right into this interview with Will Hutnick. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Will Hutnick, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well, David. How are you? Excellent, excellent. I'm excited to be talking to you again all about your work and you know, appreciate you taking the time. So looking forward to, to breaking down. Again, there's so much work. Maybe that my first anecdote is, my gosh, like you're very busy. So <laughs> that is an accurate statement. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, thank you for, for reaching out and for, you know, the opportunity. I'm really excited to, to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously I believe you are out in New York. So are, are you from that area originally? I'm, I'm from New York, not th- where I currently am. I'm currently located in Wasaic uh, in Dutchess County, 
which is two hours north of New York City. Mm-hmm. But I grew up in Long Island, like an hour and a half from the city. So my, my mom's still out there. And yeah, I've been pretty much always kind of within a two or three hour radius of New York City. The only time I, I really had substantial time outside of New York was, you know, an undergrad where I went to uh, Providence College. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So besides that, I just yeah really have been New York focused. And I guess just because it seems like you're so busy now uh, in terms of like the amount of work, I'm assuming that you've always been somebody that's been making lots and lots of things growing up. Yeah, I I really always, you know, even in high school and junior high and was always kind of kept myself pretty active, you know, like I'm like, oh, everyone is in like eight clubs and, (laughs) you know, three, three shows and, you know, so not even art. I mean, even in high school, there was just a ton of interest and and, you know, yeah, groups and clubs to participate in. So I feel like I've always been kind of adept at at navigating different scenarios and different groups and organizations. Or at least I try to, you know. Curious, like even at a younger age, I mean, were you always just somebody that was drawing, I'm assuming? Or, or I, again, I don't know, because sometimes, you know, folks don't pick up anything related to paint until they're, you know, much older or something like that. But I can just imagine you kind of like in the backseat of cars, you know, just <laughs> drawing drawing on the interior or something. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, I was always a pretty like good kid. So I was never really drawing on walls. I like, you know, it's like, I'm doing that now (laughs) making up for lost time. Sure. You know, that's some of my earliest memories is just like, you know, coloring books left and right, you know, covered in crayons. Yeah. And that was, so that was always just like been an interest and just an activity. And I, I I feel like my hands are like kind of always usually moving. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm not like, you know, actively drawing, or even as a kid, I would just like doodle on every possible notebook or piece of paper, you know, in the world, like every notebook in high school is just covered in doodles. And is that something that your, your family noticed and kind of like encouraged or were they kind of worried, you know, like, again, all that aimless time spent yeah. working in notebooks and stuff. <laughs> they were, they were really always really supportive, you know, of, you know, what I wanted to do and like my art practice, you know, my parents could always like see that I like how much I enjoyed it in high school and even beforehand, you know, or you actually, I mean, in elementary school earlier, I would take kind of like after school classes at a local art school and an art place. And then I think I had one or two like life drawing classes at Stony Brook University in high school. Mm -hmm. I was really, really fortunate. You know, I'm so fortunate to have such a supportive kind of and loving family that really kind of just encouraged it. They just kept saying, you know, this is what you love to do. Just keep doing it, you know? It sounds too like you were kind of always active with other people. It sounds like relative to like high school kind of interacting with different, you know, groups. I think you were kind of talking about different organizations and things like that. Was that something then that you were kind of like, oh, I'm going to be a fine artist. I, I know what that, that looks like. Or was it something more practical at first or? Yeah, you know, not, I mean, not really. I feel like I never really knew what like being an artist actually entailed. Mm-hmm. I I also like play the cello. And so, you know, in growing up, they were kind of like simultaneously dual interests and like dual passions. Mm-hmm. I still play, but actually majority I'd say of my high school experience was really more centered around music and orchestra and the cello, um, you know, and having those group dynamics. I think being an artist or then pursuing art like after high school and, you know, continuing was never really about like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a professional artist or I'll teach or, or whatever. I think I just kept saying, I like to paint and draw, so I'm going <laughs> to do that now and sure. tomorrow and and to continue. I mean, I had a really great high school art teacher who was, you know, phenomenal, encouraging. But I mean, I can never, can never remember actually talking about 
what would a future profession or or any like kind of logistical concerns. It was very much like kind of in the here and the now. I mean, my dad was the one who would always be like, you need a gimmick. He's like, you gotta like paint on fruit. He wanted me to paint on like fruit for a while. Um, but he he was always one trying to, I don't wanna say commodify it because I feel like that's maybe too hard of a word, but to have more practical pursuits and practicality in the back of my mind. So he he was the one that like, even in high school, encouraged me to take like a digital class. Mm-hmm. I'm not the greatest with technology. Glad this call is working. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't have any really interest in Photoshop or any of those type of, you know, art producing manners. And so I really kind of just took the digital course in high school just to, you know, kind of appease my dad to be like, look, I tried digital something, you know, it's not of interest to me, but right. I can check that one box once. <laughs> Well, and it seems to me like, again, there's definitely that lane for some artists where it's just like, I don't, I don't know what my plan is. I just, I'm going to keep doing this because I really like this and the idea and mm-hmm. the prospect of doing something else just sounds awful. Like doing long division and in, inside of a cubicle or something, <laughs> you know, developing launch patterns for, I don't know, yeah, a yeah. rocket. <laughs> I hear you. Well, so that's, that's super interesting. And also that kind of structure too. I mean, relative to like studying music, I would imagine that Mm -hmm. that kind of discipline absolutely relates to, you know, studio discipline in terms of just, you know, showing up and and kind of working. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, I feel like most of my decisions even now are really informed from playing the cello, you know, being in so many orchestras and groups in, um, you know, high school and college and, yeah, you know, you have to carve out that individual like time to practice. And I think using that terminology of obviously of like practice and the same as like in our practice, like you're never perfecting anything. It was always kind of just building towards something. Mm-hmm. For me, for music and playing in orchestras was always exciting as well because it was never this solo pursuit, right? You're always like one out of X and for, you know, for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And so really something for me really exciting about being in that participatory model. Very different from a uh, individual like studio practice now. That's, I think that's also why I like curate a lot of shows and, mm-hmm. you know, work at the Wasaic Project and have other endeavors. So it's not just like 100% of a solo activity. But yeah, I, I definitely kind of always relate that to uh, musical practice and that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds, again, like you're a bit of a go-between, you know, the groups, which I, again, can completely kind of relate to. You kind of have, like, friends in high school, like, in every kind of, like, outlet of every kind of thing, the the band dudes, the yeah. you know, the people that are interested in gaming or, you know, actors, uh, things like that. So, again, super exciting. Were you Were you kind of, like, thinking about that, you know, in terms of, like, studying, you know, for your undergraduate? Were you going to kind of keep pursuing music and then art? Or what was the deal there? I remember in high school taking um, a music theory course, mm-hmm. and I just was not really interested in it for, for some reason, which was kind of blew my mind because I had been playing the cello since I was, like, eight. And one theory course, it, like, <laughs> derailed any form of, <laughs> of what the future may or may not hold. You know, but also with the cello, like for me personally, there was less like exploration, right? You're not like creating things out of, out of nothing. But I definitely went into, you know, college, uh, Providence College for undergrad, you know, with the mindset of they had a pretty small music department as well as a pretty small art department. But I knew that both departments were active and I could, you know, pursue art history as well. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted more of kind of a well-rounded education and to still kind of 
have, you know, to tiptoe into numerous like departments and numerous interests. You know, it didn't become apparent to me until later on to then get uh, an MFA at Pratt that then I wanted to like solely focus on art. Mm -hmm. So definitely undergrad was important that like they were building a new music building. It wasn't like the greatest orchestra, but there was an orchestra, (laughs) you know, art classes that I could take. And it was like close to RISD and Providence itself has a pretty cool art scene. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that kind of just like was a well-rounded education, I'd say. Yeah. And I guess something that we haven't talked about too, you know, obviously you mentioned graphic design and kind of working digitally wasn't your thing. In terms Mm -hmm. of the types of things that you did do, was it just predominantly like drawing, painting, 2D, or did you do other, I'm assuming when you especially studied for your undergraduate, I'm sure you took all sorts of classes because obviously, you know, I also noticed some printmaking kind of going Mm -hmm. out of the work and screen printing as well as painting and drawing, but were you kind of going over and kind of exploring a lot of 2D materials or... Yeah, I'd say mostly 2D. I think it was like, you know, tiptoeing to sculpture here and there uh, in undergrad. I mean, I had a really sweet professor, but like there was really no technical skills <laughs> learned at all. <laughs> I was like, I made a hippo out of clay. I was like, great. You know, it right. was just kind of almost like one-off things. Yeah, so I'd say I primarily focused on 2D. I wasn't screen printing in undergrad, but that was definitely a first foray into like etching and some other kind of printmaking techniques that like, I really gravitated towards and was really kind of exciting to explore, especially when I then went to Pratt and I started screen printing there, which was pretty phenomenal. When I look over your work and kind of think about all that abstract language that you've been building on and building on and building on, I'm curious, especially as like an undergraduate, was that something that was, you know, inklings of that were already there or what type of work were you making when you were kind of just, you know, taking all these classes, like as, as we do and, you know, you, mm-hmm. you take a variety of these 2D things and kind of start putting putting them together to make them your own. You know, my undergrad was really all observation. It was all still lives for, you know, both painting and drawing. My painting professor, James Baker, who I loved, would just, you know, set up still lives kind of each week and just like go to town. And I feel like we wouldn't, it wasn't really technique based. It was, well, in the extent of like learning new, you know, X, Y, and Z, it was just, you know, he'd walk around, we'd, it was a lot of just like sight lines and measuring. Mm-hmm. And even if you weren't actually, you know, encouraged to, to paint or, you know, render anything realistically, everything was like observation. I had a great drawing teacher, uh, Lynn Curtis, and she was out for a year. And so we had a sabbatical replacement from Kirsten Lamb, who is mm-hmm. a phenomenal painter and good friend. And I remember the first day of her drawing class, maybe I was a sophomore or junior, she just got married. She brought like all of her wedding flowers into class and they were, you know, a few days old at this point. Mm -hmm. And that was like the first week and it was so interesting. And I remember she dropped them in the center of class and maybe there's like six people in class as well, you know, and we just all kind of rotated around throughout the week to draw various angles and viewpoints of these like decaying flowers and I remember that was one of the first assignments that like kind of blew my mind as well, because then you could, you knew you can never get everything a hundred percent, right? It was like to get as much information almost down as possible, as well as to how do you record some sense of time and some sense of decomposition, mm-hmm. as well as multiple angles and multiple kind of like realities that are like living simultaneously, uh, you know, in the same picture plane. Well, and that's interesting, even kind of related to, you know, what, what we think of maybe in terms of looking at your work now, because there's, you know, mm. 
that fragmented aspect of it, you know, in terms of different, you know, kind of formats or, you know, uh, areas that might be grayscale versus something that's colorful. So thinking about, thinking about moving, you know, and again, I don't know, I haven't, I don't think I had ever had a professor that made me do that where you kind of like, you know, go from, go from drawing horse to drawing horse or something like that or easel to easel. But I kind of get that impression too, you know, kind of thinking about these things at different angles, like you're kind of talking about. Yeah. Was it super like colorful work? Was it, I mean, were there any things that you can kind of highlight that are like, oh my gosh, this was the thing that I was after? Or was it more just kind of that, I'm going to keep working from this stimuli and, and try to make something from this every time? For painting, it, the work was always like pretty colorful, started as trying to be like realistic as possible. And then it kind of just snowballed into just bananas colors and just like throwing everything in the kitchen sink, like into the painting. But it wasn't really until my kind of my senior year, I'd say it undergrad where the work was then becoming a little more abstract or maybe junior year but it was just like trying to get the essence of a still life and the essence of a few objects so like what is almost like the least amount of information to put down that gets you to flower to bottle to Mm -hmm. whatever amalgamation of objects until then the the atmosphere for me and the context and the environment of the work became paramount to whatever you know hidden object or hidden thing So that was a really fun exercise in kind of letting go and mark making. And, you know, the work has always been pretty process based. But yeah, I kind of love looking at the transition from like more traditional still lifes to, you know, the environment kind of taking over to then like almost this like the environment was usurping the quote unquote subject matter, the information Mm -hmm. until it didn't really even matter that there was something recognizable inside. And were there any kind of like artists that you were pulling from or kind of inspired by at the time? I feel like, you know, Pollock and some of like the Ebex dudes were like always like in the like latched in the back of my brain, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially to create, you know, this like total almost like immersive environment. Mm -hmm. But also around the same time, I mean, I would go to the RISD museum pretty consistently and just spend half the day looking (laughs) at Monet or Manet or it's funny because I feel like I was like less interested in their like contemporary <laughs> shows at the time and would just always go back to like impressionist and other, you know, more historical or like dated works there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, shortly thereafter, I was like really obsessed with like Joanne Greenbaum and Franklin Evans and like Sarah Z was like mind blowing to me. I would say less, you know, less an undergrad, but more, you know, when I got a little older and then like slightly grad school. Those were kind of big influences on me. It sounds like then you kind of left that experience, you know, kind of developing a little bit of that abstract language, you know, from from the observational based works that you'd started making there. Mm-hmm. And did you have like a senior show of like, I don't know why, again, just because your paintings seem so massive now, or at least some of them do. I'm yeah, imagining yeah. these massive paintings filling up a space, but I don't know. Those were like the largest works I was making at the time. They were all like 48 by 60 ish. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the room had like seven or eight of these large paintings. One is still in Providence College because it was too big to bring home because I didn't, <laughs> you know, it didn't fit in my mom's minivan at the time. So kind of just left it at the school <laughs> to get into an environment of working pretty abstractly at this point where there wasn't that reference, any physical reference or physical object, you know, inherent within the work. And then to work pretty large was definitely, you know, a way for me to think more about the environment and like maybe a total kaleidoscopic viewing experience. Mm-hmm. Each individual mark wasn't super important, you know, is the collective accumulation, you know, cacophony of all the things. And it's funny because that's what I think a lot about 
now is in terms of some patterns and patterns kind of like butting against one another or like puzzle pieces joining is that in some of the passages, like it's not a hundred percent that you're like, you have to look at every line, you know, it's like this little area can stand in for like the whole, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and to think about, you know, that time afterwards, what, what happened right after undergraduate? Did you go to graduate school? It looks like there's a little bit of a gap maybe where you had to, had to bust tables or something or. <laughs> uh, that's, Absolutely true. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I had a series of odd jobs here and there. One was tutoring for the SAT section, the math section through Kaplan. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always kind of a math nerd, so I actually really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I was waiting tables and then bartending at an Applebee's out on Long Island for a few years <laughs> while living back home with my parents, painting in like our disgusting basement <laughs> and knowing that I wanted to go to grad school. So that was kind of building a body of work that that would, you know, get me into school. So yeah, I finished undergrad in 2007. It felt like, you know, I was at Applebee's forever and um, <laughs> in that, you know, in that in between space, but the, uh, yeah, I started grad school in September, 2009. So it was only a few years in between. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you kind of leave this, you know, intensive environment and, it's just a totally different world when somebody's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't care what you do, you know, give me, give me my wings. You know, I, I felt like yeah. that related to, uh, you know, framing pictures for people, you know, like, Hey, we've got like our daughter here. She's wearing violet. We want the oh, most yeah. violet frame ever stick violet all over the thing. You know, that's, that's what I want. And I don't care what your degree is in. Pretty <laughs> so, much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, right on. And again, it sounds like you were kind of working a lot to, to build up for a portfolio, I'm assuming. So Maybe talk a little about that. How did you wind up uh, settling on Pratt? I applied for a few schools throughout the country, and I think I only really got into like two or three. It was like the low-res program at MICA, and like the low-res didn't seem like it was going to be appropriate. The Art Institute of Chicago was like maybe going to play out, but then I like I was like it's going to be freezing in Chicago. <laughs> I was also you know right out of or a year or two under, under undergrad, so like naively like I really wasn't even also looking at like who was really teaching at these places. Mm-hmm. I also knew like, you know, I at some point wanted to live in New York and Brooklyn, like, you know, full time. This was also around the time my dad was really sick and my mom needed some help. And so Pratt then, you know, based in Brooklyn was like kind of a great way to to still be, you know, not too far from home in Long Island, like an hour plus away. And then to, you know, be in the city, which ultimately I wanted to be in, you know, for a long haul. When you, when you start that experience in graduate school, it's usually like that, you know, throw you to the wolves kind of thing. Was, oh, it, yeah. was it something like that? Cause you know, obviously um, you know, we started talking a little bit earlier about that kind of interest and in observational kind of work and how that kind of changed and evolved. I would imagine that they hopefully just encourage you to just go, go nuts with uh, the exploration of all that abstract language that, you know, has been developed for so many years. It was a really fruitful program for exploration, especially the first year. I mean, even if you took like a drawing or painting or sculpture course, like you could make anything like the titles of courses, you know, were pretty irrelevant. Mm -hmm. There was just a lot of critiques and a lot of like walking around and talking about your work and how to talk about like other people's work in, you know, and ask good questions. I think that was pretty much the basis of the model for Pratt. Yeah, so it was a great crash course in, you know, how to describe my work as well as just like base observations for, you know, critiques. Because I feel like at undergrad, you know, we, there wasn't a 
quite critique model. We'd have class discussions about some work, but it was like, oh my God, night and day from those type of conversations and environment to then going to Pratt where like, you know, people are crying over the first crit. So <laughs> sure. I was like, ooh, I was like, oh, I was like, what did I, what did I do? This is, this is going to be interesting and rough. Is that, is that a confession, by the way? Did they make you cry? No, there was a few times it was close. I really only cry over like, you know, animals in, in like, you know, commercials or like you know, cartoons, like things like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I definitely got really harsh critique, but in a great way, you know, I think I, I also was doing a lot of like painting and drawing and trying my hand at printmaking and making these like weirdo sculptures of like masking tape and electrical tape and then cyanotype. So I, I was really kind of all over the gambit to experiment. And it's, I think from the outside perspective, seemed pretty disjointed. Mm-hmm. Like I was having a field day because I was just making 24-7. But yeah, it wasn't until, you know, towards the end of your first year where they're like, it's time to rein some of these things (laughs) in. Like, you know, you had your fun, but let's like, you know, bring it down a few notches. And is that where you kind of started developing like the use of all these different materials? Because, you know, as I was kind of pointing out before, I mean, we've got, you know, acrylic, we got marker, we've got spray paint, we've got... Silk screen, and you just kind of described maybe taking some printmaking. Is was that kind of the direction? You know, just to start kind of playing around with all these different ways of kind of working two dimensionally, mm-hmm. and then kind of piecing them together into these kind of worlds. It's a good observation, but I think at the time I wasn't really trying to combine these different avenues. It was kind mm-hmm. of more singular practices. When I think back to some of my Pratt experiences and modes of working. I was really trying to like maybe not paint with a brush and think about alternative ways of like painting. You know, for me, one of the most successful things I think that transpired was I would put down like these big pieces of canvas on the ground and, you know, a big pool of paint and ink and media and water and all the things and then press smaller pieces of canvas or paper, you know, down and like pull them. So it essentially create this big like mono printing field or monoprinting pool. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when I think back to Pratt, I, I, you know, and I wasn't really know what I was doing at the time. I was just like, let's just throw everything in here, <laughs> see what happens. But I, I think back to that experience and a few other type of those like events, these, you know, it was very performative, which it wasn't like a public performance or anything. It was just like had a performative quality to it. Mm-hmm. But when I think back to those um, as being, I don't know, some of those pivotal things that kind of inform some decisions now. Yeah. And it sounds like about right in terms of that timeline, you know, where you kind of have, have thrown everything at it, you know, at the first year, and then you start to kind of distill and kind of, you know, start bring things together. And I, you know, just cause I asked you earlier, were there kind of like any artists that influenced that or, you know, maybe even other artists that you were kind of studying with? Studying with Kit White for painting, who's a phenomenal painter, Cyril Mazenter, who is an incredible art- artist and has just phenomenal like observations. I remember one studio visit where I was, you know, in, in grad school, you're right up for like 24 hours or like <laughs> four in the morning is like, you know, the norm, or at least for my norm. Mm-hmm. I remember being up like almost all night, you know, having a big studio visit the next day. And, you know, class came into the studio. I think it was called, it was like a sculpture expanded field-ish mm-hmm. course. I forget the, the title. And like, you know, everyone's looking at work on the wall. It's like, you know, bonkers in the studio. And then Cirilla looked over, I had just like balanced a few studio objects and kind of trash on my desk, you know, in a bit of boredom at like what, 4.30 in the morning. 
And I remember her being like, oh, can we talk about this work over here? <laughs> and I was like, the work over here? I was like, I, the thing I did in like four minutes that <laughs> I was like, you know, delirious with sleep. But I think about that a lot. It wasn't self-conscious in the way of like, I am making a painting. You know, mm -hmm. this will be a thing. It's just like what my hands and what my like body wanted to do to construct. Like I was like out of my way. And for me, when I think, when I talked about that, you know, that pool of painting or that monoprinting-ish environment, I feel like I kept thinking about like, what are the ways I can like get out of my own way or like put a roadblock in there so that the thing almost makes itself or like facilitates itself. Mm -hmm. I think that's why like, you know, some of Roxy Payne's like painting machines or, you know, Franklin environments like environments and you know he had, a, he had a big installation at the greater new york show at ps1 around this time that like really blew my mind and yeah so i i i, I don't know i i think back to that studio visit and that seemingly like pretty you know simple comment from sorella like all the time to like that she was able to pinpoint the activity that i was just kind of like doing on my own without being like you know i need to make a thing to kind of think about the end of that experience what did your mfa show look like in terms of the work because obviously like again that's a one of the first things that i said to you i mean literally you go back through the archive and there's like hundreds mm -hmm. of paintings on your site so you know what types of things were you wrapping that experience with in terms of your show because it seems like again kind of like you were saying relative to maybe materials it might be a little bit narrower in terms of some of the the things that you're exploring certainly versus where you're at now grad school is so weird where you had to be then so thesis minded for such a long period of time and like you know have a rationale for every mark and every process mm -hmm. or at least what, that's what it felt like so there was a period of time where i was making some like works on paper with just like white paint, mm -hmm. you know, using these like mono printing moves of paint on one surface and then press it against another and kind of pull back. So you get this pseudo mirrored, you know, fractal texture that blew my mind. And that's a process that still kind of sneaks their way into my work to this day. So it was just like kind of around the time I was making these like white on white works and, you know, eliminating all their things as then my thesis was approaching. So my thesis mostly consisted of really large works on paper that by rolls at a time. And so the edges were kind of like frayed and they were coming off the wall a little bit. And it just had these like kind of individual moments of paint. Mm -hmm. Pretty minimalist. It, it was it was a good exercise, but it, it it almost was just like, oh, the things I was doing at the moment that informed my thesis. Mm -hmm. And I had an early show. It was like the first week in March. So then I still had a few months of a studio. And I think after my show closed is when I was like, oh, now I have zero pressure because, you know, all thesis and obligations are done. And that's when I started making these like sculptures that would balance in my studio. Like I would take every studio material, stretcher bars and paint and rulers and all the things. And I would just balance them on top of each other in this like mousetrap Rube Goldberg scenario. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and those were so much fun. And for me, that's like something very similar to what like Cirilla mentioned, you know, the year prior about like, well, let's talk about this work in the corner over here. <laughs> sure, it sure. Something where I'm just like, oh, now there's zero pressure because you've already done your official requirement as a thesis. Like, I'm just like, I just want to like have fun and make these weirdo balancing sculptures. So I did that for a while, and I that's kind of like the work that I'm most excited about when I also think back to Pratt. 
Well, and to think about what came after, obviously there's a lot of years, you know, one thing that I would advise everybody to do at some point, if you haven't already, it's willhutnick.com. So again, tons of work there to check out. But, you know, what was your game plan kind of leaving that experience? Because I know, again, for myself and pretty much everybody I knew, I think we all kind of had an idea in our head what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of had to deal with a, a reality. So did you did you stay in New York and, and kind of continue to make work and, and continue doing odd jobs or, or what happened? I stayed in New York. You know, during grad school, I was also bartending at a local spot in Fort Greene called the General Green. So I, you know, just continued bartending and waiting tables and some studio, some friends and I snagged a studio at a brand new building in Bushwick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we kind of shortly thereafter moving out of the, the Pratt studio was moving to Bushwick studio. But throughout my whole time in Brooklyn, you know, which was like six years, um, I was bartending as like, you know, my quote unquote full-time, not day, but day job mm-hmm. to then support a studio practice. And I felt like a lot of my friends were in hospitality in like the restaurant world. I think starting school, it was like the dream scenario of like, Oh, when I leave school, obviously with my MFA, like I'll be teaching someplace. Like, what's like, where do I want to teach? And then it obviously came quickly apparent that that's not how the world works. You know, it was a very naive approach, but I was also pretty young, so I, I'll blame it on that. But yeah, I, I was just bartending as much as possible to afford a ridiculously overpriced studio with friends. Mm-hmm. But we we started doing crit night in the studio, which was really fun and an active way to stay involved. I started making studio visits with a lot of people and I would just, even artists who I, um, you know, really admired and respected, I would just be like, I love your work. Like, can I come over to the studio? Like, I'll bring wine. <laughs> it was also around the time where I had, I was in like one or two group shows at Trestle Gallery in Brooklyn and then kind of applied for, they had a curatorial residency and it was only through doing a few, you know, one or two shows in the studio and my friend Polly Schindler and I curated a few shows together by just approaching like, Brooklyn Fireproof and one or two kind of smaller galleries that then I kind of built up, you know, a few exhibitions. And yeah, this curatorial residency for a trestle really was a game changer because then I like got so much experience in um, curating shows, you know, more studio visits with artists, managing a space, you know, working collaboratively and, and so forth. I also feel like that was like a game changer with my practice. I like to juggle a lot of things and stay busy. But it's, I think, in being active in a curatorial lens, you know, and being kind of community focused in that regard, for me, you know, makes my studio practice also like thrive. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that kind of disappears with people when they leave school, or at least can be kind of like a a trap, right? You know, you just kind of have no connection to people. So, you know, kind of being in that environment and being able to curate shows and and get after it sounds like obviously that kind of momentum builder for everything. Yeah, because it's I mean, because I feel like the reality, too, is like there's like eight bajillion new new artists, you know, every year in Mm -hmm. city and in the school and, you know, just all over that you know, people like weren't obviously coming to the studio to like, you know, no one was like knocking on the door to go see work. This is also for me, like pre getting a smartphone, pre social media. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was definitely late in the game for social for Instagram and smartphone. But you know, this is circa 2011, finishing school. Um, so yeah, so for me, like, you know, reaching out to artists to basically invite myself over to studios to curate shows was just a great way to like, be proactive. And like those opportunities weren't coming. So just had to create my own opportunities and carve out, you know, my own space. 
Well, and I'm curious too, what was the lack of maybe having some facilities that you might've, you know, been accustomed to in graduate school? Is that something that allowed you to start kind of exploring, you know, a lot of these different materials? Cause I know, you know, mm. earlier you were kind of saying maybe some of the work was a little bit more separate and, you know, again, I especially want to take some time to kind of talk about, you know, maybe some of those developments, but that's one of the things that I think is really interesting is, you know, all these different materials, everything from, you know, pen to acrylic paint to, you know, screen yeah. print, um, but maybe talk a little about that that material exploration and how again you kind of gotten to where you have. I know again that's like summarizing a you know big chunk of work, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's. I think there is a, definitely a big practical concern of having you know a gorgeous uh, screen printing shop at Pratt, a huge studio. I actually had two studios at Pratt because it was like <laughs> kind of a semi open space, and everyone else really wanted like individual studios with the door. Mm-hmm. I kind of always really had like two spaces so I could take over space and I think work on numerous bodies of work without them really overlapping so much. And I think then moving into like a, you know, 90 square foot studio in Bushwick where then the work was always literally on top of one another. I think that it, there was a practical concern of like, I, I was using tape a lot in that work, but not necessarily to tape out painted areas using like paint as the positive like the object. And so then I was doing a lot of these like collages that then tape found their way into the work and then, you know, cutting up pieces of paper because they were probably, you know, on top of each other anyway, (laughs) they didn't have any place to go. So there is, it's funny to think about that. There was a strong, I think, practical concern to throwing all these materials together because I didn't have that, you know, physical space to actually, you know, have these separate spaces to make their work. You know, one thing I also wanted to mention of, of being in Brooklyn that kind of was a kind of an influence and just like latched into my brain was being in the subway and just seeing like the torn subway posters. Mm-hmm. There's numerous posters and like numerous moments of time mm-hmm. that are like simultaneously on one another. And you would only see, you know, kind of a, an inch or a snippet of the previous poster or the previous information. And so I, I became obsessed like looking at those and it's similar, I say, to some kind of more natural, you know, versions of like decay or decomposition or, you know, like strata, that might be a better word. But but that kind of mentality in line with like, you know, topographical maps, et cetera, was kind of like always there and something I was, you know, always trying to further explore. I always kind of work on numerous paintings at the same time. For me, like one of the, the things that was, you know, kind of pivotal especially being in Brooklyn and kind of this shift of work was thinking about like, you know, I was using a lot of like raw canvas and I'd like put them on the ground and working on like a larger piece of canvas. And then I'd like cut it up to make smaller paintings. So then like, you know, there's a few paintings that basically had the same like base information Mm -hmm. and the same kind of like starting a point. So they were all kind of like interrelated, you know, and they were all like cousins something that's pretty similar to like what's happening now with the paintings, like how I kind of start different like bodies of work for me, like always working on numerous things at once and not really like mixing any colors ahead of time or so much even saving colors. Like I'll kind of just like use what's there. And so then decisions and moments and like, you know, one maneuver always informs like the next painting and so forth, almost in this like, you know, dominoes, Rube Kohlberg, type of scenario. 
Yeah. And it sounds like too, since you're kind of maybe, you know, pulling elements from one painting or thinking like, oh, I'm going to use this to kind of build the next thing. There is that kind of relationship then, you know, visually, you know, from one to the next. And I'm assuming that again, if you've got a dozen of these that you're working on, they all kind of feed each other and, you know, you get back and look at them and and kind of think about what moves you want to make. Totally. Yeah. And I, I like the idea too, of like when, you know, similar to screen printing, you know, although I, I could never really make like a, a formal edition, I was always kind of making these like one-off monoprints. I just was never that technically skilled to make something that wasn't, you know, didn't have smudge marks or was like a hundred percent registered. Okay. That's, um, I'm already forgetting the word because I could never register properly, but there's something, you know, about that, that imperfection and the forms being wonky and, you know, about this self-similar way of generating marks and patterns like so for me like if i put you know when i was putting down paint with rollers or various tools on one surface and then using another canvas or something else to press it and you know i pull back you kind of get that pseudo mirrored image approach and then but with that you know piece of wet paint or canvas and i press that on numerous surfaces right so that information kind of gets transferred you know, over and over again. But like when you keep transferring it, you slowly like lose some of that marks and some of that information. Mm-hmm. So there's like, this, for me, a really like time-based component to that work that's like really, really exciting and really something that I was gravitating toward and really wanted to double down on, you know, especially with the work that I've been doing lately. Well, and something that I'm kind of curious about too, you know, like from a, a material standpoint, are these all kind of like worked up on the same surface or are there, you know, physical collage components? Cause again, it's kind of one of the things that I've learned, especially over the past, uh, past pandemic uh, that we've all been in is that it's always kind of crappy in the sense that like you always get a different sense, you know, of something digitally versus seeing it in person. And that's totally, yeah. really interesting because you could, you feel like you could almost peel some of these layers off, but it's hard to tell if they're all, you know, kind of sitting on that same surface or if they're kind of collaged or, you know, I was doing collages years ago, but, maybe like circa like 2012, 13, 14, like that arena. Mm-hmm. Now there's nothing, nothing collage. Like everything is like on the surface. It seems like it's, you know, collage. I think there's a collage mindset mm-hmm. as well as, you know, it's hard to um, not have some sort of digital social media. Sure, sure. You know, scrolling influence kind of seep on in. Um, you know, it's not a conscious thought, but I know it's obviously like, Everyone's a little brainwashed from social media. Mm-hmm. Everything's like on the same surface. They're they're definitely wonkier in person. Like some areas are pretty textured, some are pretty light. The lines, uh, for me, you know, they vibrate, and there is like a strong hand involved that I think you know gets flattened out, you know, with a picture and a, the digital sphere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's something about the wonkiness that's for me really really appealing. Well, and are you kind of like going into these with any compositional ideas in mind or, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that aspect of it, because, you know, that's something that's really fascinating to me, you know, because there's in some of them kind of these weird kind of shapes that I don't know, will kind of suggest maybe different places or Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, like almost like you're colliding different dimensions of space, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's something that's really interesting about them. They became way more like spatial or, you know, in terms of like outer space or interdimensional, et cetera. I mean, like I read a lot of novels and, you know, like Murakami and David Mitchell, and it's not like 100% sci-fi, but it like tiptoes into like this metaphysical sci-fi. I don't do any sketches. 
I kind of like work directly on like work things out directly on the surface. Mm -hmm. Lately, I, I start with a large sheet of canvas on the ground with like black paint and using a bunch of rollers. Mm -hmm. I'll put some objects underneath the canvas or lately I've been putting, you know, leaves or like ferns or, you know, to act as kind of stencils. And so once I create kind of this, you know, or once I create a lot of this information through rollers and, you know, mono printing moves on the canvas, then I'll cut that up, you know, into smaller paintings. But when I stretch them, I'm not stretching them basically for the composition. I kind of like, it's always a surprise to me that when I stretch of what actually transpires. So then I like have something to respond to. And so I really kind of then build the services while really trying to keep a lot of the area of unstretched canvas and really hoping then that becomes more so the positive space so that there is this like this tension between, you know, what's coming forward, what's coming back, you know, as like cheesy as it sounds, like some of like MC Escher's, you know, that like infinite waterfall, mm -hmm. it's like burned in the back of my mind. And so for me, I hope there's like some passages that, you know, the more time you spend, the logic or that pattern kind of like unravels. Mm -hmm. um, and like, so then like the first thing that happens is kind of ultimately what becomes the, you know, forward and in front and, you know, the thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and to talk maybe about a specific one, there's one called uh, False Doors, which is, again, an amazing piece. It's nice scale, it seems like, too, um, like all of your work. But maybe, you know, kind of talk a little bit about that one, and maybe we can kind of look at some of these more specifically. Yeah. So a piece like that, I mean, like, you know, maybe kind of break down a little bit what comes first. Again, this is kind of like the, the dorky part of the podcast where it's just like, you know, <laughs> I'm just fascinating kind of knowing that because obviously there's some Graystale stuff or like these kind of like, uh, you know, striped patterns that kind of recede and get smaller in space. And then maybe like a, you know, like almost like a value scale, you're kind of getting these elements that kind of suggest almost like a horizon, but then that kind of mm. gets, you know, these big colorful kind of like stripes that are kind of overlapping it. But maybe talk a little about the, the process of how something like that one maybe gets worked through. So false doors, which you mentioned, there's actually three paintings in that on my website in that in a line. It's false doors. There's one called Golden Hour and one Soaring Gardens that I made simultaneously. They're kind of the three largest paintings I've made. Two of them are six by eight feet and one is by, or six and a half by uh, 10 feet. Mm -hmm. And they were all started when I was actually at Soaring Gardens um, Artist Residency in early June of this past year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they were all started on the ground. There's a strong kind of like floral motif and ferns. I was using actual ferns and actual like flowers and plants that I like, found there and just like, you know, borrowed one or two leaves <laughs> to then use them as stencils. So I'd use a roller with black paint and kind of use them as stencils and cover the entire surface with that information. Mm hmm once the whole service is just kind of covered. And for me, you know, I, I've been using this black paint on Ron Canvas in the last few years because there's also something about like glitches and, you know, vibrations and tonalities and, you know, even like, like a there's a photographic kind of Xerox quality that for me is really important to like talk about time mm -hmm. and displacement of time and those movements. But the plants for me has have been a really recent thing. And I really, you know have always been thinking about like the landscape and topography and, you know, kind of these like interstitial systems. And so that was, yeah, one of the first times I've wanting to actually have more direct references to the landscape. Well, there, there's always been a lot of stripes and horizontal lines, but to make like a strong horizon mm -hmm. and to actually have like plant imagery. 
so yeah, so those three are from the same exact canvas that then was then cut up. Those were interesting because they were so huge and I was working them unstretched at the residency. So all of this, like particularly fall stores, all of those middle section of all these like crayons, there's these like water soluble crayons that I became like obsessed with mm-hmm. are all directly on like the raw canvas as well. So you can kind of see the information kind of seeping through. And I kind of just give myself in those regards, those moments, like some parameters to like create a passage and then just kind of break through those parameters parameters or break through the rule, you know, uh, as you're working. I'm always fascinated to learn more about color choices. And one of the things that's interesting to me is we've got that kind of like suggestion of like a passage of time or repetition or things kind of shifting and changing with that monochromatic kind of look, mm-hmm. you know, especially in these, some of those leaf forms, but where, where do the colorful elements kind of come from in terms of, is that a, like a response to, you know, some of those other shapes Maybe talk a little bit about that choice of color or the way that you start thinking about color in response to these. You know, I think I've always traditionally had like more of a bombastic color sensibility or, you know, wanting to use um, a little bit of everything in one. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely would say in Brooklyn, you know, I mentioned, you know, being fascinated by the uh, sisters and I think being in, you know, Gowanus a lot as well as like Clinton Hill and then having a studio in Bushwick and bartending over there was, you know, a lot of like, it was a pretty industrial area. And so I feel like there's kind of a, a street art mentality that went into, you know, at least some of the thought process for earlier works. But then there was, it definitely became a conscious decision of like how to like, you know, almost edit and minimize some color choices. Um, I mean, it might not look like that. I have a pretty <laughs> maximalist approach and hand. So, you know, editing is not my strongest suit. But, you know, that's also one of the reasons why I think for me, gray and the grayscale became so prominent within the work was, I don't know, A, I actually wanted to make a gradient and I felt like I never gave myself license Mm -hmm. to make gradients, you know, except for the last like few years. I don't know why. It was just like a rule that I just established that it's something I didn't do. Mm -hmm. And then at some point I thought about it and I was like, that was a silly rule. I was like, (laughs) why did you do that? So even just having this grayscale kind of pop up, A, was a way to kind of make a gradient and have a little more of a three-dimensional space uh, quote unquote, but then also to combat and create a, a space for more of these crazy, you know, bananas like color choices and color environments. So then they were a little more contained and they had a little more environment and a room to breathe. Well, and something that we haven't really talked about, and I believe you had mentioned this a little bit earlier, there's also some like mural projects, if I'm not mistaken, that you've also done. Mm-hmm. So what's that? Obviously, totally bigger canvas, I'm assuming, when you've got a massive wall to kind of paint. But I would imagine yeah. it's kind of a similar kind of process in terms of like, oh, man, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do to this this wall. <laughs> I've done two in Brooklyn. One was at this former restaurant called Willow in Bed-Stuy, and then one's still on view at the Java Project in Greenpoint. But I, you know, I, I didn't go in with any sketch or any plan at all. I think similarly of how I start, you know, these these works, the paintings of the moment with unstretched canvas and black paint. Some of those were started by just like having some black spray paint and basically just like spraying the wall, and it would just pick up the texture of the wall. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like once I have like one move down or one piece of information there's something there for like me to respond to. For me, there's always been like a nice like call and response to the work. I loved working on that scale. And even, you know, even these like, like larger, most recent ones, it's really nice like being in a, working in an individual moment of the painting 
without actually seeing or knowing kind of sometimes what's happening on the other side of it mm-hmm. and just like allowing the process and allowing, you know, the, there's more trust involved that it's hopefully going to add up or coalesce. And so particularly that the mural project at Java project in 2017 was an arena where I did, didn't have a plan, just kind of went to town, almost like this like collage mindset, right? Where I was like paint a little corner, pull back and then go to a little section but you almost then kind of forget of what already happened in the other side. One of the other things that I think is super interesting in, in terms of kind of changing up your work is obviously all the residencies that you've done too. I would mm-hmm. imagine that when you kind of change locations, you start seeing things differently or kind of just, again, just spit out like a, a new body of work almost. Because mm-hmm. again, it seems like the, that trajectory kind of lines up with a lot of the shifts in the work or maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, assuming that, but <laughs> that's the impression that I get. No, they, I think you're spot on. I, you know, for me, it's the the send the specific environment that I'm working in directly informs the work. You know, it's both like objects that I collect in the studio. You know, whether it's like weird rocks or you know, when I was at an artist residence at the Wasag Project in 2014, there was like rocks that I was putting down on canvas and sheets of paper to then like use some like popcorn ceiling texture to like mm-hmm. spray paint over, and they acted as stencils. And I like then have used those rocks in other projects and so forth. So so there's definitely moments of each individual residency and each individual environment that like seep their way in. I think because I, I never go into individual works with really much of a plan that I'm able to like stay open and flexible and kind of respond to my surroundings as well as like actively listen to the environment and what the work's trying to say. You know, one pivotal one was I was in Italy in 2017 at this residency called Benico Arte, and it was in northern Italy on Lake Garda in Sirmione. And I, you know, just brought some paper with me because I wasn't shipping back paintings. Mm-hmm. And I started doing a lot of rubbings. I was outside a lot because it was gorgeous weather. And the the driveway had this like kind of plastic hexagon-ish pattern in it of like this like netting. And so I was using that and I would like, you know, with graphite on paper, create rubbings of that and then go back into the studio to then add different patterns and textures and so forth around that. Similarly of me putting milk crates underneath the canvas and you get the ridges of the milk crates or recently with plants. But yeah, but those drawings from Italy were definitely then sparked like a whole new avenue. And um, I, I think those moments are really important. It's like, I think leaving your space and leaving, you know, the real world behind for a little bit is a great way to like refocus and like recenter and then almost like rearticulate like what are, what are you doing or like what's important about the work and like what do you what do you hope to communicate? To kind of think about all the other things that you have a hand in, maybe talk a little bit about some of the other curatorial things that you have going on and and maybe just some of the other responsibilities that I'm sure all help kind of keep feeding that. And again, it's really interesting to think about how, you know, in a way this is all going back even to high school in, in terms of all the cookie jars that you have your hands in. But maybe talk about some of those curatorial projects that you're also kind of working through now. Sure. I was for around five years, one of the co-directors of Ortega Iga Set Projects, a great, you know curatorial and collective and gallery in Gowanus. I, I kind of left them in really actually re- right before the pandemic only because I just got a little too bananas myself. But mm-hmm. you know, that was like a five-year kind of curatorial project. At the moment, I'm the director of artistic programming at the Wasaic Project, where I've been for the last six years. And so I've started co-curating all of our exhibitions 
with the co-executive directors as well as managing our exhibitions there. And then I kind of uh, also independently maybe curate one or two other kind of shows a year. At the moment, I'm like building, you know, one or two proposals to go to some spaces. I curated this show at Standard Space in Sharon, Connecticut in, actually it was just last year. It feels like 8,000 years ago, but it was <laughs> last year and the show is called Snacks. I, I just like, I was like, I just want to do like a dumb food theme show. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and I want to call it Snacks. Yeah, I had, um, you know, Yen Yen Cho and uh, Nick Dyer, Eric Hibbett, who else? Alison Kuo, David Leggett and Dana Robinson. And it was this just like, I thought it was phenomenal, like food theme show. And so right now I'm developing a proposal for the show is either going to be called like, well, probably it's probably going to be called More Snacks. <laughs> um, I kind of want to, I like the idea of having like um, serial shows where you're just, you know, Sorry, that was a stupid pun, but like, <laughs> you know, like, like sequel shows. So, um, yeah, I, I'm hoping, hopeful in the next year or so, there's another snacks show, you know, in the world. Yeah, well, it sounds like your work there then too is something that kind of really almost provides some of that stability, but then also to kind of like start bouncing ideas off, you know, other artists and kind of collaborating, and then totally. obviously kind of, you know, you get all that time that you can dump into uh, working on your, your own work as well. So again, that strikes me as super interesting to kind of have, you know, all these things that you're kind of balancing. And then, you know, I guess when, when things get really busy, you're like, ah, I'm going to go to a residency and, you know, <laughs> take off for, for a month or two. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I, I, you know, I've been in this role in Wasaic, you know, as an artist in residence here in 2014. And then I moved up to Wasaic two hours north of New York City in 2015. So just a year later, and it's great. I mean, we, we work with so many artists and residents, which I like facilitate the residency program, you know, obviously review all the applications as well. So I'm like looking at, you know, a bajillion applications mm -hmm. for both the residency and the exhibition program. But we only have like nine or 10 artists at a given time, like each month. So you actually get to know everyone and mm -hmm. I make studio visits and I'll have the artists come over to me. So there's always this level of engagement and you know, even if you're not actively collaborating with artists, it's still a collaboration of ideas and, you know, energy. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been really exciting and really fruitful. And yeah, I'm really fortunate to be here. You know, it's such a rural space. It's really gorgeous. It's only two hours from the city. And I basically like get all these weirdo funky artists <laughs> to come to me. It's, it's like win, 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 win. I really like that idea of like having a number of people that you can kind of really interact with as opposed to like maybe a massive group of people that you never really get to like learn about or, you know, find out what makes them tick. So again, it just seems really like a, the perfect spot for you to be able to kind of get in there and, and talk to artists and support them. And then also, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to my studio and, you know, work till four in the morning, I guess. Uh <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And, and I think like there's been more and more artists that, you know, have moved up to the area or live here full time. You know, Natalie Baxter has just moved up and she's an incredible artist, as well as Roxanne Jackson has a place up here and Ghost of a Dream and Leah Guadaloni. It, it's a really ripe area of like a lot of artists moving to the region. And yeah, I'm like grateful to have that community. You know, that that's something that I was kind of nervous about. Like, you know, I was really excited about the job at first. And then you're, I'm like, oh my God, I'm leaving Brooklyn. <laughs> right. Like, that's an insane idea. Like, why would you ever leave? But yeah, it's to, to be in a spot where, you know, you still have such a great dialogue and with artists and, you know, friends and like, that's pivotal to, I think, 
I don't know, and making my own work as well as like creating, creating a sense of community. Yeah. Well, and to kind of maybe highlight some things coming up, what, what do you have going on in, in terms of, you know, shows in terms of uh, curated things that maybe you want to talk about? Uh, at the moment, I'm in a group show at Birdcliff in Woodstock curated from Michelle Weinberg. It's a big group show called Artists Draw Their Studio. Um, Kirsten Lamb's in it, Polly Schindler and Kristen Schiele, Sharon Horvath, a bunch of other phenomenal artists. And I'll be in a group show in um, Five Sparks in Massachusetts in the next few weeks, curated by um, Matthew Tucker. It's called Mediated Landscapes. And I was really excited to be like for that title and to be in a, you know, to have some brand new work be in a show that's like digital-ish landscape mode. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a cool context. Yeah, there'll be a group show at Equity Gallery in the Lower East Side in the spring. And in February, I'm going to go to Stoveworks in Chattanooga as an artist in residence. So I'm very, very excited for that. It sounds like, again, a lot of a lot of busy stuff coming up, but then also a lot of fun stuff. So again, that's super exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, people want to get connected. So where's the best way to check out your work? I'm imagining that obviously you're, you're posting tons of stuff to Instagram, but is the website pretty, pretty up to date too? Yeah, I'd say the website is really up to date. Yeah, I'd say the website, you know, willhutnick.com, you know, or Instagram, which is just, you know, at willhutnick. Those are probably the best ways. Yeah, awesome. Again, it's, it sounds like, again, a lot of busy stuff coming up. Super excited to uh, have had you on. So thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate you taking the time. And it's been been really great talking to you all about your work. Thanks, David. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And I really, yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to connect with you and Studio Break. It's been great. Thanks again to Will for joining me. Check out his website, willhutnick.com. Again, there's lots of work there, but there's also so much news, so many things to check out. He currently has work on view in Artists Draw Their Studios, curated by Michelle Weinberg. That's up in Woodstock at Brightcliff. That's October 9th through November 21st. There's another show opening for Meditated Landscapes, curated by Matthew Tucker. That opens at Five Sparks at Harvard in Massachusetts. That's tomorrow, October 30th through December 18th. So again, dive into that website and, of course, follow my Instagram. That's at Will Hutnick to check out more work and say hello there. Brief reminder again that our professional competition is now open. Our juror this year is the fantastic painter and host of I Like Your Work podcast, Erica B. Hess. She'll be selecting 10 artists for an upcoming episode and appearance on studiobreak.com that includes a feature of their work as well as an interview. We're also going to be giving away two solo exhibitions, one at Hedgehog Gallery in West Chicago, and the other is at my Studio Break Gallery that will be opening up in 2022 in West Chicago. So once again, head on over to studiobreak.com to find out how. Look for our pro competition page. It's super easy. You submit a small fee. You submit an email with your information, and you are done. The competition's open to all 2D and 3D professional artists. I would note to students that we do have a student annual in the spring, so keep an eye out for that. And of course, if you're interested, please apply. If you know anybody that should be applying, please share this opportunity. Be greatly, greatly appreciated. If you're looking for things to fill your studio, please visit the archives. We've got a ton of great episodes. Recent episodes include Michelle Bondurant for 267. She's a plein air painter and collage artist. We talked to Erica B. Hess for 266, all about painting and about podcasting and curating. We talked way back in January to Isadora Stowe, who's a mixed-media installation artist and painter. That was episode 246. Way back last November, we talked to ceramic artist Sam Mack, which was really exciting, so check that out. 
There's hundreds of hours of listening if you keep going back and keep going back, so check them out. Once again, that's studiobreak.com. And, of course, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and that way you've always got something to listen to in the studio. Music for today's podcast includes Golden Shadow, which is myself on guitar, Ben Cohen on drums, and Brett Beery on bass, as well as decals, guitarists, Brigham Hagerman and Clint Parrish. Be sure to follow Ben on Instagram. That's Cohen Studio. You can check out some of his paintings. Be sure to follow Brett on Instagram as well. That's Brett Beery. And there's a link in his profile to some albums that he's produced and made himself on Bandcamp. Of course, you can find me at davidlinaway.com and be sure to check out some paintings there. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at David Linaway. So be sure to say hello. Let me give a quick shout out to Amanda Case Millis. That's Amanda A-C-M-I-L-I-S on Instagram. Fantastic painter. So glad that you enjoyed the recent episode with Michelle Bondurant. So thanks for listening. Another quick shout out to Kathy A. Moore. That's K-A-T-H-Y-A dot M-O-O-R-E on Instagram. Another Wright State alumni and fantastic painter. So check out her paintings on Instagram and really happy that you enjoyed the recent episodes. And there we go, another podcast in the books. It's raining by me right now, so I'm probably going to go down into the studio. Hope you do the same this weekend while you're listening to Studio Break. Again, hope that you enjoyed today's episode and staying safe out there, staying productive. We'll talk to you real soon.